0: Date night has been a, uh, a thing in our marriage uh, since its inception, and I will say this, date night has evolved over the years, right? What date night was when we were actually dating before we got married is a different thing than what date night is a lot of times now. Well, let me explain. A lot of times now, we'll get the kids down, we're, we're pretty... Uh, We're pretty stern with bedtime in our house. And those of you that have spent much time in our house kind of understand why we do that. We're like, hey, 7 o'clock, you guys need to be in bed. Let's do this. And a lot of times we can make it happen. So what we'll do after that is, you know, maybe once a week we'll try to do an in-home date night. And what that typically looks like is maybe, you know, watching a film, watching a movie, watching a show together. And part of that selection process is where some of the, the conflict and, and some of the discernment and, and some, of the, some of the things that we've got to decide kind of occur. And so Megan uh, is the, the kind of person that really likes uh, a lighthearted kind of chick flick movie. You know what I'm saying? I mean, surprise, surprise. She likes, the, she likes a movie that's going to make you feel good. It's going to make you laugh. It's going to be light. I, on the other hand, I like dark, sad movies. I like walking away after watching a movie thinking like, man, I was in that movie, it was sad, it was redemptive, but man, I'm like, I feel like, I, I, I kind of feel like I'm a part of a movie. It's just kind of weird kind of thing. The book of Nehemiah is kind of like a, like the kind of movies I like, okay? So they don't end with this fairy tale ending, but they end with like just this little piece of redemption, just enough to make you think, okay, that was a redemptive movie. You see, the way that we want the book of Nehemiah to end is this right here. They build the walls, they repent, Ezra reads the law, they, you know, they make this covenant with God, and they, they obey him for the rest of their lives. That's the fairy tale ending we want in Nehemiah. That's the fairy tale ending we want in our lives, but it's simply not real, is it? It's not real. And so, as we finish the book of Nehemiah today, we're gonna realize that Nehemiah is a part of this journey of redemption that God's people have been on since the beginning of time. It's the same journey of redemption that we're on, actually. And it's a gradual redemption, right? We have been saved, but we are being saved. God's people have come back to the promised land, but they're still living disobedient lives. God has to continue to pursue them, continue to, to go after them with his relentless, steadfast love, because we are prone to sin, we are prone to get out of line. And so in the book of Nehemiah, we, we kind of see this story, right? We see God's people were in exile. Leviticus 26 says, you know, hey, if you're going to disobey God's law, uh, kind of like the worst consequence you can get is exile out of this promised land. Well, they get it. So when, the, when when God comes to Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in Persia, right? And he is in Persia and God kind of Convicts his heart, he, he comes back to Jerusalem and begins to lead a charge to bring God's people home. And in bringing God's people home, one of the things that has to happen is the walls of Jerusalem have to be reestablished. And as they're reestablished, God's word comes back and it begins to flourish in the heart of the city. They begin to adopt the principles of the scriptures and the law of God again. And there's these enemies that are all around them with Sanballat and Tobiah and all these guys that are trying to tear them down and try to take them away from what God has promised them. But time and time again, we see God relentlessly pursuing them. And in Nehemiah 13 today, we kind of see what's called the final reforms of Nehemiah. It's kind of the, 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 it's the realistic story of our lives. We can find ourselves in Nehemiah 13, promising in Nehemiah 10 to keep the law and to, do, to obey perfectly. We're going to obey this perfectly, God. But finding what's real is that we struggle to obey. And we're going to see that in Nehemiah 13 today. Playing with sin, that's what the Israelites are doing. That's what we often do. And when we play with sin, we have this illusion of control, this, this illusion that, that we can play with the fire but not get burned. And you know what happens every single time is we get burned, right? But God is so gracious and so loving that he continues to pursue us. I'm reminded of this quote by a Puritan writer, Pastor John Owen. And John Owen uh, says this, and I love it because it's so straightforward. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So today we're going to talk about some ways uh, to kill sin in our lives. and And really we're looking... As we get into this, we're looking at these themes from Nehemiah, three particular themes where God's people have directly disobeyed God. It's the the three things they promised to do in Nehemiah 10, in Nehemiah 13, it's the three things that they're disobeying. And these three things are what set people, are God's people apart from the rest of the world. And interestingly enough, what we're going to discover is that these three things that set God's people apart... Just because we're now in the Newer Testament times, God has not done away with those things. They still apply to us today. So kind of the the big picture view of where we're going is we're looking at uh, maintaining God's house. So Nehemiah talks about tithing. We're going to talk about tithing today. He talks about Sabbath rest, so marking God's rest. And he talks about marrying God's people and the importance of that. So there's lots of application for us to glean today. Uh, I could do a sermon on each of these and, it, and it'd be, you know, I'd I'm, I'm not be able to cover everything I need to cover. So this is going to be uh, somewhat of a vignette or a thumbnail sketch, but nevertheless, we're going to get into it together. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Nehemiah chapter 13. And we're going to start in verse 4 this morning as we look at Nehemiah 13. And the question I want you to consider as we go through Nehemiah 13 today is this. How do you view your growth in God's grace? How do you view it? Are you pleased with it? Are you very disappointed? Therefore, almost uh, uh, putting this image on God's face that maybe may or may may not be true uh, of how he views your walk in him. Um, Because I think we could read Nehemiah 13 today and be devastated at what we'd see because we'd see the same things in our life. But remember the story, though there are 400 years of silence after Nehemiah, then Jesus comes on the scene. God has not left his people. God has not left you. I don't care where you're at today, God has not left you, but I want you to consider that question. So let's start in verse four today. Uh, The way that we're going to go through Nehemiah 13 is I'm going to read a piece, I'm going to preach a piece, I'm going to read a piece, I'm going to preach a piece, and sometimes we handle it all up front, but we're not going to do that today. So Nehemiah chapter 13, verse four. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah, Tobiah's an enemy of God, okay? He's he's been an enemy of the Israelites since day one that they've been coming back. Um, A large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of the grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites... Singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God, and I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back their, uh, they're the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So what's going on in Nehemiah chapter 13? Well, Nehemiah has gone back to Persia, which was once Babylon. He's gone back, because remember, if you remember Nehemiah, like one and two, he, he asked leave of King Artaxerxes, he's like, hey, I'm going to go, and I want to help reestablish my people in Jerusalem to build the walls. I want to do all this thing want to do all this stuff. But he, the king says, hey, when are you going to come back, Nehemiah? Nehemiah honors his promise, and he goes back to Artaxerxes. Now, just to give you a frame of reference, Susa, which is the, one of the capitals of Persia, and Jerusalem are about 850 miles apart. Or, in this day, about a 55-day journey. So this isn't, just like a, this isn't just a commute over to Publix from your house. I mean, this is a long journey. Long journey, 55 days there, 55 days back. So Nehemiah hears what's going on. He hears that Jerusalem has once again kind of gone off the rails. God's people are disobeying God's law. He says, I've got to go back. So he goes back. And what does he find when he gets back to Jerusalem? Well, Eliashib, who's the priest, has invited Tobiah, who is one of God's enemies, to, he's invited him to live in the temple. Well, this is a problem, right? Elias should believe the same God that the Israelites believe? No. They have invited pagan gods into the temple of the Most High God. Big problem here. Now, before, before you're tempted to believe that God is not concerned with the, the Ammonite, the Ashadite, or the Samarian, I, I want to read, read Nehemiah, I'm sorry, I want to read Numbers chapter 9 to you. Uh, because I think this is important for us to understand about who God was in the Old Testament how he's exactly the same as he is today. Numbers chapter nine, verse 14 says this. And if a stranger sojourns among you and would keep the Passover to the Lord according to the statue of the Passover and according to its rule, so shall he do. You shall have one statue, both for the sojourner and for the native. So here's the deal. Tobiah would have been fine to be in Israel if he would have conformed to what Israel believes. Anyone was welcome to be, a part, to be an Israelite spiritually. They were welcome to embrace those things. God has always had a heart for the alien, for the stranger, for the sojourner, but they had to conform to what Israel believed. The problem here was not a racial thing, as some people will take Nehemiah 13 to to be. It's not. It's a spiritual, unequally yoking kind of thing. So we're going to see that play out a little bit more fully as we go through these three compromises uh, that they they have um, embraced. So... um, These compromises have distorted what God's truth says. And and, and we we notice this, that that when we compromise the priority of the truth, and this is our big idea for the day, where the the whole sermon's headed. When we compromise the priority of the truth, we compromise everything. We have nothing left to stand on when we compromise the priority of the truth. So let's continue rolling through this in Nehemiah chapter 13. Let's pick up in verse uh, 10 here. I found also, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who, who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, and get this, why is the house of God forsaken? Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses and I appointed as treasurer over those storehouses Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, Badiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Madaniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God. And for his service. So, what's going on here? The Israelites have neglected to tithe specifically to the temple. Okay? So there's twelve tribes in Israel. Eleven tribes were given land. The Levites were not given any land, okay? They weren't given any, any way to really make a living okay they weren 't really given the land to be able to produce the grain, the wine, and the oil to be able to survive the way that God set up Israel was for the Levites to take care of the temple to take care of the household of God, and therefore the other, the, the other tribes that had the land and had the provision were able to, to, to then tithe to the temple and the Levites would be taken care of so let 's notice what the, uh, what, the, what the Levites have to go and have to do in and, and verse ten uh, we see that the, the, the Levites hadn't been given their portions, and so what did they do? Well, they fled to the field, so they had to leave because they couldn't they couldn't provide for their families because there was no tithe coming in, so they weren't able to to, 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 um, to provide and, and to even even to procure worship for the Lord because that took resources to be able to worship the Lord, for the sacrifices, to keep up with the things of the temple. And I'll tell you this, I, I'm the last person that wants to get up here and talk to you about tithing, okay? Because here's what I know. Every, not, maybe not every single one of you, most of you in this room have been a part of a worship service before where somebody has said something about money that's really made you squirm. And, and I realize that as I'm preaching about this, but, but, but I feel like the text is bigger than uh, our presuppositions and things that we've walked through before. So part of what I wanna do today uh, is, is to unpack this a little bit. Uh, and, and what I'm asking you guys to do is to maybe have an open mind about what God might say to us uh, through this uh, today. So they fled. Um, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so what's happened is the house of God has been forsaken. So worship of the Lord is not being offered as God has intended it to be offered. Now, in the book of Malachi, um, Malachi, um, it, is a, it is a prophetic... Writing to Judah, which is where Jerusalem is. And, and the thing that Malachi, it's written right at the same time that Nehemiah is written. The thing about Malachi is really interesting because Malachi prophesies about three things. Some more things, but predominantly three things. Do you, do you care to guess which three things Malachi is prophesying about to the Israelites? Tithing, Sabbath, marrying believers. Those are the three things he's talking about. So if you read the book of Malachi and kind of lay it over Nehemiah 13, you're going to see the same themes kind of go about. So I wanted to read uh, from Malachi chapter 3 a little bit about what he says specifically about tithing. He says this, uh, Malachi 3, 6 through 12. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And He says this, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And he says, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. You can, you can underline that because it's, it's the only time that God's word says it, put me to the test. Any other time it's like, hey, don't test the Lord, don't put him to the test. He says in here, put me to the test. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field should not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You'll be a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. I'll restore you. I'll bring you back to what I intended you to be, but right now you're experiencing drought. You don't have enough because you have not trusted me with what I have given you. This is exactly what he's talking about here. So it's pretty straightforward. They're to bring the tither to trust, even when it's tough. So the question for us, and I'm going to jump straight to the application right here, is tithing a New Testament kind of biblical thing for the church? We could take a survey right now, right? I heard a story uh, recently about a guy, about two guys that were stranded on an island. This is funny they're stranded on an island and uh, and one guy is like he's like really frustrated he wants to be rescued, their plane has crashed. Um, so he's like he's a building a fire, he's sending up the, S, you know, the SOS signal to, to anyone that would see him. There's this other guy that's just kind of laying out and kind of beaching it, right? He's kind of just, just soaking up the rays, he's enjoying the clear water on the tropic island that they're on. And the guy that's like frantic looks at the guy that's like peaceful and he's like, hey dude, what's going on with you? Don't you really care about getting rescued? And the guy that's you know, just kind of beaching it says, says, hey dude, I make $100,000 a week and I tithe faithfully to my church. My pastor is going to find me. You better believe it. <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> so the question is, is tithing biblical for us? Is it what God has called us to? I will tell you this. The word tithe means one-tenth, right, in Hebrew. This is a very debatable thing. I would say that everyone that I've read on this topic that I tend to agree with on other things, says that this is still a biblical thing for the church to do. And I'm going to give a little bit of explanation behind that, although I can't go into it. Most people think that, that tithing is the floor, not the ceiling for giving in the church. I want you to notice how really what, what Malachi 3 was about was it, all, it was all centered on this idea of need. He's like, look, if you guys would tithe, there'd be no need in Israel. So I just found that really interesting that it was kind of centered on this idea of obedience and need. I would say this. When we read the scriptures, whether you know it or not, you have what's called the hermeneutic for reading scriptures. Meaning you have have a way that you are coming to the word and understanding the word. A hermeneutic for you to have in your tool belt as you are reading the word of God is this. If God does not tell us to stop doing something in the Bible, we're supposed to continue to do that. Okay, I say this in our membership class, but if you haven't been to the membership class, I want to reiterate it. The most dangerous page in your Bible—get this—it's the only page you can rip out in your Bible. So, to tune in here, is the page in your Bible that says the New Testament on it? Because for some reason, we tend to think that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different gods, and it is simply not the case. So, I mean, if you want to rip it out right now, throw it out. I don't care. You can rip that out because the editor of your Bible put that in there. And it tends to make us think that God in the Old Testament is different than God in the New Testament, and it's simply not true. So, so if, take, for instance, food laws. Do we still observe the food laws as Christians? Well, in the book of Acts, uh, Peter has this dream, right? And God comes to him and he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. For what I have declared clean, do not consider unclean. So that all of a sudden kind of broadens The spectrum for what Christians are allowed to eat. It broadens it. We see them kind of do away with the food laws. Uh, You know, you could take sacrifices. You read in the book of Hebrews, the Israelites were, were called to make sacrifices at the different festivals as they came to worship God. There was an altar there for them to burn their sacrifices. In the book of Hebrews, we read that there's no longer any need for shedding of blood. Because Jesus, our great high priest, has made intercession for us. And because he's risen from the dead, his blood speaks a better word, a more full word than the blood of animals. So those animals were pointing to the sacrifice that Jesus would make. We don't have an altar where you're bringing a goat when we come to worship anymore because Jesus is our sacrifice. But on these three things, God's God's not said anything differently about those things. And so a hermeneutic for us to have, a way of interpreting the scripture would be to say, If God hasn't told us to stop, we keep doing it. So then the question becomes, okay, what's the temple? Uh, If you have a Bible, you can turn to to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I think it's verse 16. Now, this isn't in the context of giving, but it is in the context of us understanding what the temple is. You could also, if you want to jot down 1 Peter 2, you could read 1 Peter 2 as well, where we're called the household of God as the church. But 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this, Do you not know he's talking to the church, God's people, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you. So has God done away with the temple? No. He has redefined what the temple is. The temple is no longer a building where God's presence lives among God's people. But the new covenant is the fact that God has given us the Holy Spirit and we are his temple. His spirit dwells within believers. And so as the church, we make up the temple. Now does the is the church and the temple, do they, do, they, do they serve all the same purposes? No, but they, they overlap a lot, right? I mean, there there is a lot of overlapping uh, in, in that case. So, so we could kind of go down that road, but I'm, I'm going to stop it right there. So the question is for us, or what are the next steps for us? Uh, because I, I, I'll, I'll be real honest with you. I was a full-time pastor for two years before I tithed to the local church. It's pretty embarrassing, right? I mean, I was teaching, actually I didn't teach on this because I didn't want to be confronted with it, but, um, I was teaching the Bible and just kind of choosing not to obey this part of it and was really confronted by it. So, so I want to help just give you some maybe helpful next steps if you wrestle through this and, and for us at New City Church, this is for those of you that are, uh, you know, consider New City Church home and, and, uh, you're either a member or kind of on that track to be a member at New City, um. So the first thing we gotta do is define the things that stop our obedience. There are underlying things, whether we wanna acknowledge them or not, that that keep us from obeying God with our generosity. And and some of these, I'm gonna just list a few of them that that I've had over the years. Uh, One is this, the church doesn't need my money. Look, there's tons of people giving, the church doesn't need my money. Well, giving is more about you and God than it is about you and the church. It always is. It's always a heart posture issue. Or maybe you say, uh, man, you know, It doesn't seem like the church is spending their money wisely. They have all these exorbitant buildings, you know. uh, (laughs) I'm joking. But uh, maybe they're not spending the money wisely. Maybe maybe you have those concerns. And I would say this. uh, The the way that we're governed as a church is we are elder-led. And our elders are from Perimeter Church because we're not yet mature enough. As a church, we're a year old. We're not yet mature enough to have our own elders. Uh, That takes time to develop leadership leadership. Uh, but we have some local elders and then, and then perimeter has like three hundred elders that kind of there 's a group of those that shepherd new city church and help lead us. They set our budget they set my salary they set all of those things If you want to see any of those things and you 're on the track to becoming a member at new city church we're we 're wide open uh, send me an email we 'd love to uh to talk more about that if you 've got questions about that or or maybe maybe one of your concerns is you know um i Maybe you say, and this is what I've said, um, I give to who I want to give to. I give a little to the church. I give a little here. I don't want to give a full tithe to the church. And one of the things that I was convicted by was this, is that I was willing to trust the church with my soul, but not my money. And that hit me like a ton of bricks because my soul's like way more important than money, right? <laughs> but it was kind of flip-flopped in my mind. So I would just, I would just encourage you in that to take a step. Uh, so define find the obedience stoppers, know this, the generosity is more about Jesus than it is about money, about you and Jesus than it is about, uh, you know, money to the church or anything like that. And then I would encourage you to maybe take a step like Malachi 3 says, test him in this. Now, if we were preaching a prosperity gospel, what I would tell you is that, man, if you just give money, God will, he'll make you more rich. That's what he'll do. But you and I know that's not the truth. The promise is that God will bless us. We don't get to determine what the blessing looks like. Sometimes, maybe that's financially, but it certainly hasn't been that way for us. The blessing is always spiritual because anytime that we are depending more heavily on the work of Christ for our redemption, what could could possibly go wrong for us? So he says, test him in this. So I wanna invite you to test him in that. All right, well, let's keep rolling along in Nehemiah chapter 13. Let's look at verse 15 now continue to look at this This is where he kind of goes into the sabbath here he says in those days i saw in judah people treading winepress on the sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine grapes figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into jerusalem on the sabbath day and i warned them on the day when they sold food uh, tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people in Judah, in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah, and I said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. <laughs> From that time on, they did not come to, on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. I don't know about you, but I tend to have a negative view toward the Sabbath. When I think about the Sabbath, I think about all the restraints that it puts in my life sometimes, right? It's like, what do you mean, God? You're telling me what to do with this day of my week? And we tend to think about the fact that we could be making money, but now we got a Sabbath, or we could be doing this, or we could be doing that, but God's called us to rest. We tend to look at it from a negative point of view. But you know what the Sabbath is actually about? It's about recalibrating the rhythm of rest and redemption in our life. So think about it like this. Uh, I play guitar, some of you guys play guitar, and most of you play guitar a lot better than me. But anytime you play guitar, the first thing that you do when you pick up the guitar is what? You tune it. Because if you don't tune it, if I were to bring my guitar in here not tune it and just step in and start playing with the band, you know what they would all start doing? They'd all start looking at me like this because you're way out of tune, dude. I mean, guitars go out of tune. It's just what they do. The strings have to be retuned. They have to be re-centered. They have to be recalibrated. God has made it so in our lives where we have to be recalibrated frequently because you know what? we are prone to forget the fact that we've been redeemed and that because we've been redeemed, we can rest. We are prone to forget those two facts. And so God has so made it that we are to look at this and reflect on this every single week. We're to recalibrate, we're to rest. When you look at the Sabbath in the scriptures, it's it's Genesis chapter two, uh, it's like the first four verses. It's part of the creation narrative. And in the, when, when, when God, um, God kind of institutes the Sabbath, he himself rests, right? It's before the fall ever occurs. So some of us think, oh, man, the, you know, the Sabbath is kind of one of those things God had to put in place because of the fall. Before sin ever entered the world, God said it's good to rest. It's good to rest. So part of us walking in this redemption, especially as Americans, is obeying God in this about resting, about about walking in this with God? So I want to look at two things quickly. Um, I want to look at the the, uh, the rest part, part of it, and then we're going to secondly look at the redemption part of our focus on Sabbath. So you have a Bible, flip it over to Exodus uh, chapter thirty-one, uh, verses sixteen and seventeen. So here's what God's word says about the Sabbath. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, ad- observing the Sabbath throughout the generations as a covenant until Jesus comes. No, it's a covenant forever. So the question is, what does forever mean? Is it like forever, 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 forever? It's forever, right? It's forever. It's the sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he rested. And I love this. And was refreshed. Sabbath is about us focusing on the fact that God has designed us to rest. Some of us in this room right now are operating at such a pace that we are trying to live outside of our design. We think that we are superhuman and supernatural and that we actually don't need to rest. And you know what happens every single time? You're going to crash and burn. It's going to happen. Because your body was not made to run at that pace. Sabbath is about rest. God has created us to rest. And we, we, we realize that we're free to Sabbath because the finished work of Christ has given us the ability to be able to rest because it's finished. So we can leave things undone. And I know that bothers me a ton because there's always more stuff to do. But when we don't focus on the fact that the, the finished work of Christ has given us the ability to rest, we are prone to have a works-based identity in salvation. Every single time, you're going to think it's up to you. So he gives us the freedom to rest. Secondly, uh, Sabbath is about reflecting on our redemption. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15 says this. You should, so he's talking about, he's talking about uh, you know, keeping the Sabbath. It's one of the Ten Commandments. So he's, he's talking about this here. He says, you should remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. That's how he starts out talking about the Sabbath. Okay, so, so you want us to remember the fact that we were slaves in Egypt. There were slaves to sin. You want us to remember that. That's how you want us to start out thinking about the Sabbath? Okay, let's keep, let's keep going. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is about us focusing on the fact that we could not redeem ourselves, that we had to be redeemed by another. And so what does our activity on the Sabbath look like? It's about resting and focusing on our redemption and doing things that give life in light of the fact that we're redeemed people. So the question is, what does Sabbath need to look like as a Christian? You know, I went to Israel in November, and uh, we drove through the Jewish quarter of the old city uh, on the Sabbath, which for the, Jew- for the Jews, it's uh, Friday night into Saturday evening, Uh, sundown to sundown. As we drove through, you could just kind of peek in the window and you saw candles on the table, families eating. There was no traffic. I mean, could you imagine what Atlanta would be like if we kept the Sabbath? I mean, it'd be amazing, right? No traffic at all? There was no traffic and they were sharing life and I'm sure there was lots of work to be done. But they were resting and it was an amazing sight to see just how still and how quiet that part of the city was. Now, the other three quarters of the city was hustling and bustling. But that quarter of the city, it was just very peaceful. So what's the Sabbath need to look like as a Christian? Mark 2.27 says this. This is how Jesus kind of helps frame it for us as, as believers in him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So it's not about keeping, it's not about keeping the Sabbath to keep the Sabbath, okay? God has given us Sabbath rest so that we can focus on redemption, that we can grow in the fact that we are desperately dependent upon God. And so I think that there's a lot of freedom in how Jesus says that to the Pharisees. There's a lot of freedom for us as Christians. And so what's that mean for us? Inactivity is not the same as Sabbath, okay? It's not about just vegging out, watching TV all day, have just Sabbath in today. But maybe that's a part of your Sabbath, I don't know. But there's an active engagement with the Lord on the Sabbath, remembering and reflecting on the good work that He's done for us that recenters us. So, kind of the next steps for us, I would say, is this start somewhere. Even if it's four hours on Sunday afternoon that you Sabbath, start there. If you're not doing that at all, I don't care what it is. I think, if you, let's say you work on Sundays a lot. Maybe Sabbath needs to be another day of the week for you. I think Jesus gives us the freedom to be able to do that. For the Jews, it was Friday night to Saturday night. For the Christians, it's Sunday. And we get that from the Lord's Day in the book of Acts where, where they, they tend to be celebrating on the Lord's Day because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So that's why the, the Christian Sabbath has changed. It's evolved. I think there's some freedom in that. The important thing is that we start somewhere. The second thing is this, have a plan. The thing that I notice in Nehemiah 13 is that after Nehemiah cleanses these guys out of the city, gets them out of the city, he posts a couple Levites up on the gates of Jerusalem. He's like, hey, don't let anybody in. You're not gonna drift into obedience in this area. It's just not gonna happen. We've gotta have a plan. So if you put things on a calendar, put it on your calendar. Take a step in that direction and watch the Lord give you peace. And watch the amount of work that you want to get accomplished Watch that even increase as you rest and you reflect on the fact that God has called us to this and it's for our good and for his glory. Lastly, let's, uh, let's keep rolling through Nehemiah 13. I wanna, wanna, definitely want to hit this last point about marriage. So we're going to pick up in verse uh, 23 here. So let's keep reading. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashtad, And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them. This is, this is one of the verses in the Bible where you're like, I, I got no words for this. I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. <laughs> and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was, no like, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we listen, Shall we then listen to, to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada. The son of Eliashib, the high priest, who was the son in law of Sanballat, the Hornite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priest and the Levites, each in his own work. And I provided for them wood offering and appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. So, Nehemiah 13, I think sometimes we tend to think about um, equal yoking, spiritual equal yoking, um, in, in, a, in a way that doesn't acknowledge what God wants us to acknowledge. So, I mean, take for instance, it's like, we kind of take it lightheartedly, like, hey, like, I'm a UGA fan, and she's an Auburn fan, I think we can make this work out, at least she's not an Alabama fan, you know what I'm saying? We tend to think about it like that, but it's so much more serious than that. I mean, even verse 25, when I read that, I'm like, goodness gracious. He cursed him, he pulled out his hair. I mean, what's, you know what it makes me think? It's like I have no idea about the holiness of God when I read verses like this. Just a babe in learning how holy God is when I read stuff like that and think about how that would be appropriate. How, 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 How distancing yourself from sin could cause you to to take those types of extremes. But at times I'm just, I'm tempted to entertain sin, okay? I'm I'm tempted to, I'm tempted to just kind of play with sin and just kind of, kind of toy with it a little bit and think it's not going to hurt me. Nehemiah goes to these, these deep extremes here. And so for us, God's called us to the same thing, uh, if you have a Bible, open to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, this is, this is not specifically in the context of marriage. This verse isn't, these, these verses. But it's really in Christian, in, in deep Christian fellowship, anything like that. So it would definitely apply to marriage. And like I said, the thing we got to remember is, is even though Nehemiah lists all these different races of people, the heart behind it, as we see as we look at the whole scope of Scripture, is that they are spiritually unequally yoked. That they're worshiping the gods of the Ashadites and the Samaritans and all these other people. But they're worshiping all these pagan gods and not the one true God. So what does the scripture say about equal yoking? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16. says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship... Has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So let's think about this image of yoking. A yoke would be like this heavy duty wooden beam put over two animals, right? maybe two ox, that would kind of keep them unified as they go forward, right? So he's saying unequally yoked would, would mean something like this, that you put, you know, maybe a, a donkey uh, and, and, like a, and like an ox or something, and you yoke them up together. What's going to happen? They're going to run around in circles, right? Because they're not the same strength, they're not the same height, it's not going to fit on well, it's going to be all weird. So, so what, is, what, is, what is Paul saying about being unequally yoked? I think he's saying that, uh, that, that we are to, to focus more on the spiritual aspects uh, in the courtship phase before getting married than maybe even the physical aspects. For instance, Megan and I, uh, our, our story, this is not prescriptive by any stretch of the imagination, so please don't hear that if you're dating right now. Uh, we, I'd probably actually advise against what Megan and I did, but uh, what we did was uh, we met We started dating like immediately because we both were in in the city together. We were part of this church. We are like the only single people in the church. We started dating immediately. And then, you know, we just kind of knew God's calling us to this. We're spending a lot of time together. Had other believers in our relationship that were were kind of helping us uh, kind of draw out some of those things that were really important. And so we get engaged uh, on my birthday four months, four and a half months into dating. And then four and a half months later, we're married. So we have known each other nine months and we are married see what I'm saying? That's not prescriptive. God can do that. He's done a great work, right, in us. I mean, I I don't see how she married me. I mean, I must have tricked her or something. I don't know. But anyway, the the important things for us to focus on are more of the spiritual implications than the physical ones. Yet, all the world around us seems to talk about is the physical. Do you have this in common? Do you do this? Is there, how's the attraction? I mean, what are all these types of things? And I know there's 25% of our church, guys, 25% of our church is single. How is that for a stat for a suburban church? It's amazing. God, we, we, Megan and I prayed that New City Church would be a place for single people to thrive. That, that, that singles in our church would not feel like uh, they are the, the, the fifth wheel kind of left out, but that they would love to be a part of New City Church. And God is answering that request, whether you're widowed or you're in your 20s, you've never been married, or maybe in your 40s or 50s, and you've never been married, or maybe you're even divorced. We prayed that this would be a place for that. And, and I would strongly encourage you uh, to invite other believers into that courtship process if you're dating someone. And don't be afraid of the honest truth that others will give you as you're walking through that because there's nothing, there's, ma- let me say it like this, marriage is hard enough with two believers. Okay, seriously, you got two sinners that have become one flesh and you're trying to live in a unified way to honor the Lord and seek the Lord together. It's hard enough. The last thing you want to do is get into a relationship with someone that is, doesn't have the same belief system as you. I don't care how good the attraction is, heed the word of God on this. Now, if you're in a relationship and you're, you're un, you just honestly say, hey, I'm unequally yoked, we're, we're, not, we're not in the same place spiritually. Um, the scriptures tell us that you should stay in that marriage, that you should stay there, and that you should fight hard for the gospel, that you should not, should not give up on the work of God just because It's hard. Um, it's, it's about this gradual redemption. Even in the, in the um, I think it's 1 Corinthians 7, I could be wrong on this, it's either First or Second Corinthians, where it says that the, the unbelieving spouse could be sanctified by the believing spouse. That's the hope that we wanna see happen. But don't give up on your, your relationship with God's people because that is, the, that is the silver lining to where you're at spiritually right now, that God is, God is covering you with folks that, that are uh, equally yoked with you. And your prayer is that your spouse would become a believer as well. And that's not gonna be easy journey, but but the scriptures call us to stay in that uh, relationship. So the next steps for this is we kind of land the plane on this. Um, The Holy Spirit, um, let me say it like this. Marriage is about Jesus, not us. So I find it interesting that, that Jesus uh, the scriptures say that, uh, that they give this analogy between Jesus and the church as the, as the bridegroom and the bride. Your marriage is about Jesus more than it is about anything else. Your marriage is about Jesus more than it is about anything else. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a display of God's grace to the world that we can be one with God. And you see that by two sinners coming together and becoming one flesh and following God together. So our next steps would be to, I, I think, first invite others who are believers that you trust into that courtship process. Randy Pope would even say, he goes as far to say like early on when his kids are small, he said, you know, I just always kind of put that in front of them that, that mom and dad should be a part of the spouse selection process. That That's a good thing. It's not an arranged marriage, but it's a good thing for your parents to be a part of that spouse selection So, maybe that's something that you talk about with your kids as they get older, that you want to be a part of that process and you think that that would be a good idea so that you could help ensure the fact that they would get married to someone that is yoked with them. And the other thing is this regardless of where you're at single, married, widowed, divorced trust the Holy Spirit's leadership with your relationships because it is God that has made Megan and I one. It is God that's made any married couple in here one. If you're one flesh, it's God's work that's done that. And that's the image that we get of a yoke. That yoke is the Holy Spirit. It is the work of Christ. That's why Jesus says, come to me. He says, my my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The only way you're gonna stay married, the only way you're gonna honor God is through submitting to the leadership of the Holy Spirit uh, in your life. That's why it's so important, and that's why Nehemiah talks so much about this. So we've talked about a lot of things today. And... uh, my question to you is the same question that I asked before. How do you view your growth and grace? This, this, uh, this drawing right here is, I don't, you probably can't see it because it's with orange marker, but this is a drawing that my uh, five-year-old, six-year-old, she's six now, a six-year-old daughter uh, drew a few weeks ago. And uh, you know, whenever I get home from work, uh, my kids are always like, daddy's home, it's like they drop everything, just run straight to the front door. And typically, if they've done something that day that's noteworthy, they want to show it to me. So Tatum walks up to me, and I I ask her if I could share this note, for the record. She said, she reluctantly said yes, because she's pretty shy. But I, she comes up, and she shows me this note, and she's so excited about it. And I start reading it, and it says, it says, my family, and it says, mommy, daddy, Tatum, Maggie, Caden, Roman, I love my family, and it has a picture. And the way that she spelled my family uh, is, my, M-I, and family is F-E-M-L-E. And I read it, and I'm like, as soon as she shows it to me, I'm like, oh, okay, this is nice, this is great, and we've got all this artwork, like, taped all over our walls at our house. And the first thing I'm thinking as I see this is, gosh, couldn't you spell my family right? Come on. And I, and I kind of am, I'm not that excited about it, and Tatum was like, super excited, and Megan then reminds me, hey, Ryan, she spelled that by herself phonetically. Like She, she doesn't know how to spell it. She spelled that by herself phonetically. And so here's, what I, here's what I realized about myself in that moment, that I am tempted to look critically about progress. I am tempted to look at my spiritual journey and think, man, God, why couldn't I be a little further than I am right now? Megan, on the other hand, in that moment was looking at the progress that's already made. So my question to you is, how do you view your progress in the Lord? Because by God's grace, I'm not what I want to be, but praise God, I'm not what I used to be, amen? So church, could we join together as we walk out the story of redemption together, and could we, could, we, could we press on toward new obedience, but could we also be grateful for where God has brought us? That would be my big takeaway from the book of Nehemiah, and I, and I pray that you would join with us in that, because it 's all because of Jesus that we are where we are today, and the invitation is to all of us, so let 's pray together. Father, we thank you that uh, that we can strive to be like you um, and that, that in fact, you give us the desire to strive toward that. You give us the grace to strive toward that I'm thankful that the Ro- the, the words of Romans eight chapter one are not are true that uh, there's no longer condemnation for those that are in Christ. And so, Father, for those that are in here today that, that feel the heavy weight of their disobedience in some way, shape, or form, I pray that you would just grant grace, that you would meet them, meet us, right where we are today, that we would be able to declare with confidence that, hey, we're not where we want to be, but we're not where we used to be. It's in Jesus' name.